You're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I'm Greg Porter. And today we're going to talk about turning points in our businesses, turning points in our maker journeys, and turning points in our career. And so I'm going to start with you, Brian, if that's all right. All right, um, cool. Just asking basically what <laughs> we all experience those turning points as, as we're learning new skill sets, as we're getting into new territory. But as it relates to making things, what what are you thinking were maybe some big turning points or milestones that you can see uh, in your career or in your making that made a huge difference that maybe even still affect you today? Yeah, I think probably the biggest turning point was when I came to the realization I wasn't charging enough for my work. I had a interior design client. Well, she wasn't a client. Uh, I was trying to get her to be a client and I was working up a bid for her and I sent her the bid. And this was when I was first starting out. So I didn't have a lot of income coming in. So I was like desperate to get any job I could. So I sharpened my pencil up really sharp to get the tightest bid I could over to her because I didn't want her to walk on price, right? I just wanted her to, to accept my bid and so I could build this thing. And I sent it over and she emails me back and she's like, I, I'm sorry, I don't think I have the right guy. I look at your website and you have some really beautiful work with joints that are pinned with wooden nails type of thing. And and uh, this, this bid doesn't reflect that. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, it's too low. And I was like, okay. So I didn't know where to go from there. I was like, do I send another bid and add another thousand dollars on it or, or what? And she says, requote it, just double check your numbers. And I was like, okay. So I, I, I sent her another bid and she's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to hire you. And so I was like, so it's too, you don't want to hire me because it's too cheap. And she's like, yeah, you got to understand that this is going in a million dollar home. So if you walk in and you scratch the floor and you've barely made enough money to pay your own bills, how are you going to fix that floor? And how are you going to pay the insurance to fix the floor? And do you have insurance? And at the time I didn't have insurance. Mm -hmm. And um, so then she's like, like, and also if, if you bring it in and the client says, oh, it's too shiny, I, will, I don't want it that shiny, uh, like, how are you going to handle that? Do you have money in your bid to be like, no problem, I can just take it back to the shop and buff it out and, and not have to get in an argument about money over a little thing like sheen. Um, so that really just got me thinking about like, wow, there's a lot of things that I'm not considering in my bid as far as liability and and making sure I'm covered in my overhead and all of that. And so that was a really big turning point. And so I started raising my prices uh, quite a bit and the quality of client came up as well as my price. As soon as I did that, I started attracting higher, uh, a uh, higher quality client. So there's two different types of clients in this world. There's clients that brag to their friends like, hey, I just uh, got this great deal. He was asking 2000 for it and I talked him down to 1500 And then there's clients that are like, wow, I hired this great craftsman. He did this fantastic job. He wasn't cheap, but he was totally worth it. And so once I raised my prices, I started to attract those clients that were really into hiring the craftsmen and not the guys that were like, cutting me down on price. Well, it reminds me in a, in a very odd way. Um, gosh, I want to say it was within the last decade. Kia had the high award-winning luxury car. And I think it was Kia. Uh, it's either Kia or Hyundai. One of those two. And people couldn't believe it because the car didn't cost enough. And it didn't matter the interior quality, the level of fit and finish, you know, all of the, the level of reliability, the service. None of that mattered because the price on the car wasn't high enough. People didn't believe it. 
And it's amazing that if you have a very valuable product, like what you're, you're making, it's, it's a high end product that the perception of value that people are getting is tied to how much they paid for. And I think some of that might be a little bit of of the ego when they brag to their friends about how much they paid for something, you know, but, but also the more you charge the the more they're going to look at it as a, as a, an object of desire, maybe. Right. The more they're going to appreciate it. They're going to be like, man, I paid a lot of money for this. It's got to be, be top notch. Yeah. Interestingly enough too, I had a great conversation with a, uh, a guy who owns a company that, that sells, I'm just going to say jigs for woodworking. That's how I'll, I'll put it because I don't okay. want to call him out. And I was talking about pricing with him in the retail market and all of those things. His background was in business. It wasn't in manufacturing. His father had created the business and he took it over. And he told his dad, he said, we're not selling enough of these because we don't charge enough for these. People don't perceive that there's any value. And he said they kept raising their prices. And the more they raised their prices, the more people bought their product. And he said, now there's a threshold. There's, there's an upper end to it, but there's definitely a point where people look at it and they want to buy the best of the best. And if you're not the highest priced in the market, they're going to skip you over for the guy who is because his must be better because he's charging more for it. Right. And that's a really bizarre way to frame somebody's vision of, of what your product is worth, but it's absolutely true. Yeah, that kind of happened recently in the woodworking world. Uh, the Wood Whisperer did a review on miter gauges and yeah. the most expensive miter gauge after he used it, he was like, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody just because uh, it's it's really just really a high price thing, but a whole bunch of people bought it. So of course, I'm sure that he got some pushback from people defending their purchase of why they bought it, but they probably bought it thinking they were buying the best one because it was the best price when uh, the one step down from that actually outperformed it in all his tests. Yeah, I, wa- I watched that video and it was fascinating to me being somebody who's in that manufacturing world and understanding, you know, the level of quality that you've got to produce. Now, if you're charging that kind of money, you better be able to back it up, right? Like right. you, can't, you can't show up with something that has gappy joints <laughs> that doesn't fly. Yeah. When you're charging, you kind of got to gauge your experience. Like when I first started out, I didn't value my work as, as much as I should have. But at the same time, looking back at the quality of work that I did then, there's no way I could charge what I charge now for what I was making then because people would be like, no, that's not, that's not worth it. You know, my experience level then was an inch tall where now it's a foot tall. And uh, I hope next year this time it's two feet tall. So, um, and hopefully I can command an even even better price for it or or be more choosy about the clients I take on. Yeah, well, so um, I think that's a really interesting turning point. So as far as pricing goes, increasing your price obviously has has that perception of value, whether whether it's real or not, it's, it's definitely that perception of value. Has there been anything else on the business side uh, with regard to to how you charge for projects that has changed the way that you you approach your work? Oh yeah, absolutely. I recently started charging to do bids or to do designs instead of spend doing the bid and then sending it off and hoping they buy it because like when someone asks for a custom thing, you can spend a lot of time drawing it out and to create a drawing to present to them to say, hey, this is what I'm thinking for your project and hope that they like it. And if you produce a really cool drawing, 
there's a good chance that they're going to like it. But if they're not a qualified client to understand what that's going to cost, you just wasted all your time. So right. now when a client uh, calls me and asks me to uh, do a bid for them, I try to qualify them to see where they're at. Is this a custom piece? Are you looking for me to be the artist to design something for you? Or are you looking for me just to build something out of a catalog that you've seen? And if they're looking for me to be the artist to design something for them, then I kind of have a conversation with them about, well, what kind of project it is, how evolved do you want it to get or involved you want it to get? And then also um, the type of woods and what kind of uh, budget they have. And we'll, so we'll talk about budget. And I usually don't ask them what their budget is because I feel like when someone asks me what my budget is, if I'm not sure about what their business and pricing structure is and I say, oh, it's 5,000 and they were thinking 3,000 and then they just charged me 5,000 for their 3,000 work. So I think it's important to kind of have a feeling of what you value your work at so you can tell them what the budget is. So I will, after our conversation of what they want, I'll kind of do a real quick calculation to see what I think it's going to cost me. And if I think uh, it's going to be an eight to $10,000 project, I'll just tell them, okay, so we have a budget of $10,000. Does that work? And if they say that works, then I tell them, okay, so I asked for a 10% deposit as a retainer to do the drawings and the design. And then from there, I do a 50% deposit. And that has really saved me a ton of time from sitting at my desk drawing for nothing for a client that never materializes. It's interesting to, to look at how people value design versus the actual material thing. And I think, you know, on my side of the fence as an architect and as, as a designer, we look at clients and, and clients a lot of times value the contractor so much more than the designer. And it's because they have a physical thing that they leave behind. We, we just do drawings and pretty pictures. It can't cost any money, right? It's just, right. it's a service. It's not, it's not a physical thing. And getting, educating clients on how valuable the designer's time is, because without the designer, there is no thing right? The, the, the contractor or the builder or whomever can't execute if they don't know what to do. And it's, it's interesting when you actually educate a client on what design, the real cost of design is. Everybody thinks it's just kind of free. It's real fast. You can, my wife is a graphic designer. You can just sketch a logo, right? right. And no, no, you can't. <laughs> and, you know, people have no problem paying for stationery and, and business cards and other things, but to pay for the person to design the logo that goes on there, you know, people, people have a hang up about that a lot of times. Right. They, uh, that's not the, uh, the work they see. It's not a tangible thing that they see at the end. So they're like the contractor building the thing. They can see the two by four. They can see that he worked eight hours in the hot sun, sweating, framing that house, but they don't see the, the amount of work that it went to figure out all that good needed to go into, to all the structural loads and all the design of the house and the layout of the floor plan and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, so kind of shifting a little bit, from a technical skill standpoint, were there were there any things in the shop that, you know, when you finally got a hold of that high level skill set that you said, man, this is this is really changing the way I work or the quality of the work that I'm doing? Yeah. The point when I realized that I wasn't sharpening properly, I wasn't staying sharp. I, I see it all the time in the woodworking forums that I belong to. Uh, guys will post pictures of their 
TV in their shop and they're like, all right, it's game day. I'm going to sharpen all my chisels while I watch the game. And it's like, I used to be that guy. And then I realized like, why am I letting my tools get that dull? So when I'm in the flow state of getting something built and I realize, ah, oh, that tendon is too tight. I just need to take a quick swipe off of it. And I grab my uh, shoulder plane and it's dull and then it tears up the tendon and now the tendon is too loose because I ruined it because my tool was dull. Or you spend all this time hand planing that tabletop and as you're halfway through, it starts to tear out is because I waited too long to sharpen. So now, no matter what, even if uh, it's still cutting good, uh, a quarter of the way through, I'll stop and take that blade out and take a couple of swipes on the stone and keep sharpening. So that way it's 100% always sharp. Every cut is beautiful. And it may seem like, oh, you're wasting so much time because you're stopping and sharpening so often. But if you have some tear out, then that's a huge problem. That's a huge amount of work because now you got to flatten the entire tabletop to get rid of that one tear out dip. So, um, yeah, and then everything just changed from that point just by staying sharp because I was always ready to go no matter what problem I encountered while I was building something. I always had a sharp tool to execute the cut as perfectly as I could. One, that reminds me of one of the most influential days of design school for me. We had an instructor, um, third year, John Lee was his name, and uh he brought in a film called The Japanese Carpenter, and they talked about, you know, all the all the joints from the Japanese building trades and how they did them. And, and they showed all the tools and everything else. But the thing that stuck with me was when a Japanese carpenter starts their apprenticeship, the first two years is spent sharpening everyone else's tools. And the reason behind that is when you become the master carpenter, you you need to know how how to sharpen those tools first off, but you also need to have that discipline to say, I need to stop right now and I need to sharpen my tools so that this cut is going to be exactly what it needs to be. And doing that for two straight years, it gets rid of all of the hesitation to stop and sharpen your tools. I'm sure you've seen videos of those guys. I, I don't know what the tool is called, but it's, it's almost like a, a cheese slicer almost where they just, they pull it along these huge logs and these ribbons just float off that are, you know, 12 foot long ribbons. And, you know, watching that, it was, it was so mesmerizing, number one, to watch it, but then to learn about the discipline of just keeping sharp tools. And you look at these intricate joints and the most important part of that joint was having a sharp enough tool to keep that joint tight yeah for sure yeah that uh that i can't remember what it's a katana maybe i can't remember what that's called where they pull that plane across the wood and, but in japan they have actual competitions to see who can get the thinnest and they're measuring down to like the the thousands of a millimeter you know whatever yeah. paper thin toilet paper thin mm -hmm. tissue paper thin uh shavings it's crazy yeah well, I mean, you know, I, I would say, Brian, it's it's always interesting to hear those turning points, but absolutely razor sharp tools. You can't compromise in that department, you, whether it's the blade on your table saw or whether it's the plane that's in your hand or the chisel that's in your bag. They all have to be uh, in tip top shape. And it's it's also interesting. I, I know you know this, you know, pulling a chisel out when it's not quite dull yet and just hitting it on uh, the strop a few turns sharpens it in an instant. Like you oh, yeah, can keep your like tools so much sharper, so much longer. Quick. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So before we hit record, you're telling me about how you wanted to start your guitar business and you didn't want to think you could come out of the gate right at $20,000 compared to some other people or selling their custom guitars at $20,000, but you wanted to start somewhere and see where that goes. Was that kind of a turning point for you or to um, come to that realization or? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think everything we do, um, when you see people do DIY projects, there's always two outcomes that I see. Either one, somebody comes and in, becomes incredibly frustrated because they don't possess the level of skill to do the project with ease like the person they saw do it, whether that was in a book or a YouTube video or someone at work telling them how they did, you know, hanging wallpaper or hanging shelves or building a piece of furniture, whatever that is. There, there's that level of frustration because they thought those skills didn't have to be acquired. They were just like, yeah, I've seen somebody else do it. I can do it. Right. And the second outcome is somebody stands back and they're incredibly impressed with themselves. And they say, I never thought I could do that. And I approach things, what, whatever it is that I do uh, in design school, we did tons of mock-ups and those mock-ups are practice. They, you might build them out of cheap plywood or foam or some other material that's not your finished material. But as you're doing it, you're walking through all those problems that exist with that design and you're solving them slowly on a material that's inconsequential because it, it's either scrap or it's very inexpensive. And you, you approach it knowing, hey, I'm going to make a few mistakes. And you have to make those mistakes to understand what to avoid. When you know asking about guitar building and those sort of things, you can't come out of the gate expecting to make that museum or ex exhibition quality guitar your first round because the people who are making those have been doing it for 30 years. Yes, they make it look easy, <laughs> like people on, on YouTube hanging wallpapers and things like that. But, you know, so for me, I know there's a part of me that understands to build my first set of acoustic guitars that I'm going to do it with lower grade materials. I'm going to expect to make mistakes and I'm, I'm going to make experiments out of them too. Hey, I know the book says do it this way, but is there a possibility that I could do it this way and maybe change that process a little bit and question things? And thinking about turning points and how that applies, I think early on in, in my design education and my making, um, which when I was in design school, I had welders, I had a little bit of woodworking equipment, we had a shop in our studio, and I was constantly in there making mistakes and making, making junk. And one of my teachers put it really well. He said, Hey, don't worry about making mistakes. We're not making Christmas presents today. <laughs> and, and it was a really interesting way to look at it. it. It sort of took that fear of failure away. And I'm going to approach my first guitars. And it doesn't mean I'm going to approach them from a sloppy perspective. Like I don't care if I make mistakes, but I know that I'm going to make them. And the only way to get to uh, the great example is Edison with the light bulb. Uh, somebody once said, and I don't know if it was him or if it's somebody else that that's the quote, he didn't, he didn't make 200 or 300 failing light bulbs. He discovered the two or 300 ways that weren't the right way to make a light bulb. And right. then finally he discovered the right way. So I think for me, a huge turning point was uh, that instructor in the shop who, who pointed out not every first crack is going to be that exhibition or Christmas level quality thing. You've got to work your way into that and you've got to do those mock-ups. And so I fully expect the first guitars to be mock-ups. There'll be wall art. 
and they probably won't be as playable as I want them to be, but, but we'll get there. So that was definitely, I think for me, a, a turning point in my education to understand you've got to go through those failures to get to the successes. So uh, when you were building your Carmagia, the, uh, the stakes were obviously higher because you want this, this is your, your baby, your pride and joy. So were there any like major turning points when you're building that thing? Yeah. So um, I'll say a few of them and some of them might seem unrelated here, but um, when I, when I started building that car, uh, it was a complete wreck. My brother had hit it. It was rusted out from the bottom six inches down uh, needed all kinds of metal. And back then, yes, there was internet. No, there was no YouTube. And I literally knocked on the door of a body shop and just asked them if I could watch. Can I just come into your shop and watch you do a repair? Nice. And the answer, you know, there was always an excuse, but, but the real reason was, you know, people were protecting their livelihood. They didn't want somebody who was potentially a customer to come in and watch them do the work and then go home and do it themselves, right? Uh, like, yeah. why would you... Why would you teach your competition? So there was a point at which uh, I really got down on the project. I worked on that car for 18 years. That was how long the project took me. And the first almost decade of that project was me just getting frustrated because I didn't know how to, I, I, I didn't have a place to learn. And part of that turning point was realizing it, it was interesting. I know people who do projects all the time probably face this. I didn't have any supporters. I didn't have any cheerleaders. And my wife didn't, she thought I was wasting my time. There's no way you're ever going to get this car done. And my friends were like, why are you wasting your time on that car? It's just a hunk of junk. And I knew in my head that it could be done and it could be drivable. And it could be this really cool thing, but nobody else could see it. So a huge turning point for me was realizing at some point, if you work on something hard enough, you can acquire that skill and you wind up hitting this, this break point where all the people who tell you that you're wasting your time finally see that diamond through, through the rough, right? And they go, oh, wow, you are doing something that's positive and you're improving this thing. And if you keep working on it, you will get done. And then all of a sudden you have these cheerleaders. What, what really hit me was, and this is, this is my YouTube story. In 2006, I started a YouTube channel. It proved probably the most true YouTube idiom of all time. If you want the answer to how to do something, don't ask the question in a YouTube video of how would you do this? You put something out that's the wrong answer and everyone will tell you you're doing it wrong and how to do it right. Right. And I'm sure you've, you've seen this, right? Oh yeah, and I've experienced it many times myself. And I got on and, and just started making videos of every single thing that I was doing. It was like a weekly thing. All of a sudden, these guys that were building quarter million and half million dollar hot rods were tuning into my channel to watch me do it wrong, to tell me how to do it right. I, I gained some of the best mentors probably in the country through that effort. That was a huge turning point for me. I learned, you know, I had guys saying, that was back when you could direct message people on YouTube, but right. I had people saying, call me, I will talk you through this. I will tell you every step that you need to make because they became my cheerleader. They wanted to see me succeed because they had skin in the game. They had been helping and, and they had a reason, reason to do that. The same is true in the maker community. And I think that's why YouTube is such a great thing is because it's a dialogue. It's not a one-way street. When I make a video and I show you know how I make a piece of furniture or how I make a guitar or how I do some kind of a, a project on the car, somebody may say, hey, when I do that, I do this and it improves me. Or they may say, hey, I tried that, but I had this really hard time. 
doing X, Y, and Z, and somebody else jumps in and answers the question for them. That, that to me, I think, not just in my personal career and, and kind of journey was a turning point, but I think in the world as a whole has benefited from all of that interaction. I, I just think it's fascinating. Without that interaction, I wouldn't be who I am today. I mean, 2016, that was, uh, gosh, 15, 16 years ago, seven, 16 yeah, years a ago. a long time ago. So, so quite a few years ago, you know, almost, you know, approaching two decades now that, that that's been a part of my career. Yeah, I think my- you made a, a really good point that the world benefits as a whole, especially not just as people learning from you to how to create something, but also how to communicate it. Like when I get comments, sometimes I'll get comments says, hey, that was a really cool way you did that. Have you ever tried it this way? And it makes me think, oh, now, now I'm learning something new. And then I get comments from people like, you're an idiot. You should have used a Forstner bit instead of a spade bit, you know? And it's like, well, that guy is kind of a jerk. So you kind of delete his comment, but you hope that, uh, that he's going to learn, like, maybe that's not a good way to communicate because he deleted my comment now. And, uh, and so then hopefully next time, maybe he'll come back with something more positive, or at least I hope he hopes that he comes back (laughs) with something more positive. Like, like there's a way better way to treat if someone comes at you as, as an attack, you're, you're of course already now you're on the defensive and you're like, well, screw you. And now, now neither one of us are learning anything, but if you come in, it's like, oh, the ICO, what you did there, have you considered this? then, then that's a whole, it's a whole new thing. And I mean, it's that, it's that way in real life too. You know, you, I've gone to a lot of car shows and it's, it's really interesting. There's, there's the group of people who, who know it all. And there's the other group of people who are, are just there to help. And you'll see people go buy a car that looks fantastic and they'll just start picking on it. And I think it's, it's an internal thing, right? It makes them feel better because they're picking on that guy's work. Yeah, and they're then showing, another, up, showing their knowledge, like check my ego out and all the stuff I know. Yeah. And then there's a different group of people that will stop. And if they, if they see a deficiency, they'll start asking like, Hey, why, why did you do it this way? And you know, there's a thousand reasons people do things. People are on tight budgets. Sometimes right. people are on tight timelines. Sometimes, sometimes they didn't do the work somebody else did and they bought it and they're slowly improving that car. And Hey, I just haven't gotten there yet but it's coming up and that's the time for that interaction. Hey, I didn't get to, I didn't get to repaint the firewall on this car because the engine was installed and I haven't had a place to pull that engine out. But once I do, I'm going to, I'm going to wet sand that and buff it. Do you have anything that can help me do that? And then all of a sudden that exchange of information starts to happen. And it's, it's just really cool to see, to see that interaction. I think YouTube is, is kind of that place in real time all the time. Now back to, back to the turning points, you know, I I think one of, one of the other things I learn more when I have to teach someone a skill than when I just execute. And I learn as much from teaching them as I do, as I do any other way. YouTube has been a, a wonderful source of, you know, I say some of, some of the stuff I do is like, Hey, it's DIY. This is how I do it. I'm just going to bring you into my world and show you my process. But as you're going through and rethinking that process, you're kind of constantly questioning what you're doing and why you're doing it. And you learn so much from just doing those things. And so there's a lot of value as a designer, as a builder, as a maker to making videos to try and explain what it is you're doing. You make yourself better in the, in the process. Yeah, you just reminded me of, of something. Uh, one of my friends that uh, watches my YouTube channel, he's like, 
Like, why are you telling everybody your secrets and how you do this thing? Like in uh, the desk video I did a little while ago, I showed how I made this jig to cut the uh, curves on the handles for the bandsaw. And it's not something you really see very often on YouTube, but just, I, I don't know. I think it's just kind of like the math is kind of complicated for some people to wrap their heads around. And so I showed how I, I came up with uh, the curve of that uh, jig to do it. And he's like, I don't understand why your your people are going to just be able to rip you off now. And and I told him that the stuff that I'm doing now funds the stuff I want to do in the future. So if I look back 10 years ago and I kept my secrets all secret and I never told anybody and never put it out there, I wouldn't make any money from that secret and it wouldn't have funded what I'm doing today. So I'm hoping that I'm always constantly learning and by teaching other people and I'm earning ad revenue and they're taking my classes at the Wood Whisperer Guild or whatever. So I'm uh, earning revenue on the knowledge that I know now, and that's allowing me to grow and invest that, that money in myself to learn new things, to build something new or create something new in the future. So yeah, YouTube has really helped help my um, knowledge just grow really rapidly, not necessarily just by watching other people build stuff, but by funding my builds. Well, and, and I've, I hope I haven't, I'm not repeating myself, but I've always said you can give 10 people the same box of cake mix and, <laughs> and have them follow the recipe and you'll get 10 different cakes. I guarantee it. There will be some that are good and there will be some that are ready for the trash. I've always thought through that lens about sharing the things that I know, and I don't feel like I know it all, but the, the small amount of knowledge that I have in my head, I will readily share with anyone. And if they're going to be my competition and they can outdo me because they work harder or they practice harder, or they have better ideas, then they deserve to, to, to right. you know, win, yeah. win. If, it's a, if it's truly a competition, I don't think what we do is a competition. I think there's room for everyone. And I think a rising tide raises all ships. You know, we're, we're all in this to make everybody better. And it just brings us all up. And I, I know the more I give, the more I get back. There's no doubt about it. Right. And the people that are driven to uh, be really good at the craft that they uh, have chosen, like being a, a master woodworker or whatever, uh, and they might learn something from me. I don't think that that person is going to necessarily copy me and rip off my design because that's not in his nature. His nature is to uh, find his own path. And that's why he's watching what I do. And that's why I watch what other people do that are better than me. And it's not because I want to uh, rip off someone like Philip Morley, who's a, an amazing furniture maker. And I follow him religiously on everything he does because he's because he's so good. And it's not because I want to build what he builds. It's just I want to learn from him and then apply that to my own designs so I can go off on my own path. So I don't think once you get to a certain level, you're going to be copying people. I think that's the, the people that are just looking to make the quick buck, and then they'll never have the skills to really copy the guys that are at the top anyways. Well, I think one of the, the proofs there is when you look at, um, I'm a little bit into impressionistic art. That's one of my favorite things. Okay. Uh, and you look at, at those modern masters that really birthed the impressionist movement, and they all worked together. They all painted together. They all hung out together. They went to the coffee shops together. They exhibited together. They influenced one another's work. And they took, you know, if it would have been one individual, the work would have leveled out at a certain point. But the fact that they all worked together, it brought them up because they inspired one another and they pushed each other. And one person, you know, say a, a Monet 
was uh, staring over the shoulder of of a uh, uh, Renoir would be another example. <laughs> you know, one one staring over the shoulder of the other, saying, "Oh, I hadn't thought about approaching my work that way." And when he paints his next painting, it doesn't look like that one over there. It looks like what he would do just another level higher. And I think that's definitely um, what's happening for the most part on YouTube. You know, you could point out certain project types where people just copy, 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 paste, paste, paste. And that's fine. You know, if, if that's if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But I can point out several creators uh, who one up each other. And oh, every absolutely. time it gets a, another layer better, everybody benefits from that. And it's yeah. such a cool thing to see. Yeah. So, um, so other turning points that you may have had, like from uh, tooling standpoints, I, the last time I was out at your shop, I was just uh, fascinated with your milling machine. I wanted you to leave so I could play with it and you not know. <laughs> <laughs> you should have asked me, I would have turned it on for you. Oh, you some yeah, stuff, but... I was intimidated because I have no idea how or anything about that world like so uh adding new machines to your shop is that uh has increased any kind of creativity or anything like that yeah it absolutely has and i think for for a couple reasons number one there are certain things that um you can't you can't die with all the toys right like nobody has a shop with every tool in it right but at some point you've got to reach out and you've got to say wow, I'm probably never going to cut glass in my studio or in my workshop. I'm going to have to have somebody else do that. And when you do that, you're on their dime, right? You've got, you've got to pay them to do it. You're also on their schedule. So sometimes there's a gap between, I need this to complete my idea, but I can't get it for mm-hmm. four more weeks because. And ABNC. also, yeah. And also on their skill set, if they, if you've chosen the right maker that has that right skill set, just because they cut glass, are you looking at like a glass blower skill set or a, just a guy in a glass shop with a, with a wheel? Right. Sorry, I didn't Go ahead. Oh, no. And, and and so there there's been a number of things over the years where I've acquired tools simply because that prototyping process was so long because I had to wait on other people to do it. You know, there's a threshold to that, but the milling machine was definitely one of those things. I, I don't really want to be a machinist. That's not in, it, it is in my family history. My grandfather was a machinist. His son was a machinist and a gun maker, gunsmith, I guess is the right word for that, but he was also a tool and die maker. And so I have a little bit in the, of that in my family history. My wife's grandfather was a machinist for TWA doing work on rotating parts on jet engines. So I had a little bit of that by osmosis, but really no desire to machine things. Why I bought the milling machine was because it was taking so long to get prototypes done. And uh, the machinist that I work with, he has a workload. He does all of my production work. And to sneak in a prototype was taking him a long time. And and it's not a dig. Um, He was busy busy guy and to stop all production and say, okay, I'm going to work on this thing that fits in the palm of my hand for two weeks uh, to get it right. Because of course you do the first prototype. And then as a designer, you look at it and go, well, we need to change these five things and then make another one. And now I can go out in the shop and, you know, I've done it several times where I'll wake up on a Saturday morning, I'll draw for about three hours and then I'll go chuck up a blank in the milling machine and make the part and then look at it, redesign it. And by, you know, eight o'clock that night, I've done three or four iterations and it's exactly what I want. And I would tell you, I'm not a great machinist. Uh, those prototype parts are okay. 
they aren't high level. I don't have that 20 years of experience to make the parts perfect, but they're good enough for me. And that milling machine closed the gap between the idea and the final product. Cause once I get it made on my milling machine, my machinist has an identical machine in his shop. And so we just transfer files back and forth. He finds the little mistakes and errors that I made, whether that's mm -hmm. feeds and speeds or whether it's the type of tool I use or the type of cut that I make the approach to, to that milling path. But, but the pattern of the part is there and that has closed that gap from probably a three to six month process down to two weeks. And that in and of itself, huge turning point, especially if you're like I am, I'm in a, you know, I manufacture guitar tools and being able to put out new products by shortening that prototype uh, process, I think is, was a huge turning point for sure in the business. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at with my 3d printing acquisition that I just got. Uh, I, I had no idea. One of my friends just kept telling me, you just need to, you just need to buy it. Once you have it, your imagination will go. So I was like, okay, so I bought one and I didn't really know what to do with it right at first. But so this thing is my prototype for a drawing rack that I'm building in my finishing room. So it, there will be poles that come out of here out of both sides. And so your board will lay flat on this. So for those of you that are listening to the podcast and not seeing the YouTube video, uh, we do publish on YouTube, but uh, it's basically a mechanism that has a cross brace that opens and closes to spread the main poles out back and forth. And so I can accommodate different size boards, depending on how wide I have it uh, to dry on as I'm working. That's just going to be a huge production saver in my shop. So that's my first thing that I printed on my 3D printer. It took me like six iterations to figure out how to do that. But uh, So how long did it take you from the first drawing you did to the first iteration of that? design well the free <laughs> that's the downside of 3d printing the the this just one pull of this thing took uh like six hours to print but so I, I guess maybe i should ask that a different way from the time you started drawing to the time the printer started to print was about how long oh an hour yeah yeah i, and, I drew it in sketchup and then uh exported it out and sent it to the printer and then that was that's a whole nother thing trying to get plastic to stick to a glass build plate <laughs> it took me a, a day i had to call my friend up and was like dude you need to come over because i'm i'm struggling here but uh um he helped me get it uh, get it going and show me some good tips on beginning 3d printing 101 and uh, yeah, and then the second I realized that my brackets were backwards, so uh, it the cross braces wouldn't attach to the other side because they were in the way of each other, so it wouldn't swing. So I was like, well, good thing I printed it before I went and built it. But yeah, so it took me six iterations to get it uh, a working one. I, I visited with a an architecture firm called Morphosis out in Los Angeles when I was on sabbatical a few years back and they they are an incredibly innovative firm and tom main um the managing partner there has been one of my architectural idols since i was in school and every night they have um three powder printers which were the first 3d printers that were made wow. um, i'm trying to remember it starts with a the the name of it is a z something and they have three of them that have been putting out 3D prints for like 20 years. The, the guy who invented 3D printing at MIT 
it was his design. So it was like design number one of 3D printer. But every night, the way that their studio works, they all work on designs all day long. And at five o'clock or six o'clock when it's time to wrap up, everybody sends their design to the 3D printer. And the 3D printer has all night to print whatever it is. The volume of that thing is one foot by one foot by one foot. So it has all night to print their things. They come in in the morning, they turn the lights on, they pull the print out of the powder, and that's what they start working on the next day. And it's this fascinating routine because wow. every day is an iteration of their design. Holy and crap. No, knowing how many failures I had trying to get <laughs> it to print and not turn it into a rat's nest, I, I can only imagine how how crazy stressful that would be to uh, leave at night and hope that you have something to work on the next day. But maybe the well, powder print is a more reliable thing. That's what I was going to say. It, it is much more reliable. So it's it's more of a resin that, that prints... Uh, on t- it, it works more like an inkjet printer than it does a plastic printer. Got it. Um, but but that said, I think it's it's that practice of iteration and daily. Like if you if you sort of resign yourself to, hey, I'm going to spend eight hours designing something. You know, in their case, but in in our case, it might be, you know, what I'm just going to design for an hour in the morning, and then I'm going to start my 3D printer going, and then I'm going to go out in the shop and I'm going to work for six hours or eight hours or whatever the magic time is before you get hungry or tired and you come in and by golly your part's done (laughs) and it's either a rat's nest of plastic or it's awesome and if it's a rat's nest that's okay you'll you'll do the next one tomorrow and it's that that repetition you know five or seven days a week however much you work in your shop and do your thing that you can you can do and build on every day It, it becomes a language that you start to speak yeah so yeah that kind of made me think back to when uh we were talking about when i started charging for bids that i said i wasted all this time doing designs that clients never bought and that kind of made me realize that maybe that wasn't really a waste of time because i still went through the exercise and learned from the exercise so then because i wasn't able back then just to be able to say okay well that that thing is going to be a $5,000 thing because I didn't have the experience to, I didn't have bid enough projects to know how much things cost and how much time went into it until I went through that process. So maybe I shouldn't have said that it was a total waste of time because there was a lot of learning happening to get me to the point to where I could charge for uh, designs. Absolutely. You know, one of the other things, uh, thinking about turning points again, I think we talked a little bit offline about this. There's kind of two pieces to this. And one was when I was a young person, I realized at some point, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact thing that made me realize it. And I think it was when I was building my first shop, we moved into this tiny little house and it had a single car garage. And I knew I needed a two car garage to do what I needed to do. So I knocked down the garage. I built concrete forms, poured footings myself. I bought some old steel trusses from a scrapyard, and that was my roof structure. And I I built this thing with the help of some family. I built this shop, you know, kind of with the bare hands. I didn't hire anybody. I didn't pay anybody because I didn't have any money. I was a young architect, not making jack squat <laughs> in terms of salary. Uh, those who don't know, architects don't make a lot of money, and young architects really don't make any money. You know, we were living off ramen. And, uh, and I realized at some point in the middle of that project that I could have things that other people didn't have if I just spent the time to get them. Uh, the way my wife's grandfather told me, he goes, 
sometimes you have more time than money and that's really valuable. Your time is extraordinarily valuable if you put it to work for you. And I put it to work building that garage. I, I built the garage for almost nothing. You know, so much stuff was just leftovers and scraps and whatever else. And I realized at that point, I was holding myself back because I was looking what, at what everybody else was capable of doing. And I don't mean from a skill perspective, I mean, from a time perspective, most people come home from work and they turn on the television or they do something and they relax. And that's understandable. Everybody works hard. But I realized at some point, if you put in a small extra effort every day that most people aren't putting in, you're going to have something that those people don't have. And that investment, that daily consistent investment pays off. And that can be building skills. It can be building physical things. It can be building a business. And, and that turning point for me, uh, a buddy of mine who restores very high-end hot rods, he's, he's a wonderful body guy, paint guy, all of the above. And he, he introduced me to this concept called the power hour. And what his thing was like, he always had another car that he was working on. And since he was in a body shop, that car, he could bring in a door, he could bring in a hood, he could bring in something. And before he wrapped up his tools for the day, he would spend an hour working on his thing that he brought in and his materials, his tools, his time, his everything, just using the shop. And in an hour a day, he was able to pick at these projects over time and build value in these hot rods at his house. And that mental turning point was understanding that every day you've got to invest. If you have a full-time job, you've got to invest an hour in yourself because that builds real value over time for you instead of your employer. And it's not bad to build wealth for your employer. That's a good thing. Good thing to have a good resume and all those kind of things. But you need to you need to focus on consistently building value for yourself. And that was a huge turning point for me, understanding that there was life after work and you didn't have to look at your coworkers and say, I need to limit myself because of what they're capable of doing or not capable of doing. Yeah, totally. And that works even if you're self-employed. Like I don't have a boss other than my clients. And every morning I spend an hour or so uh, just working on my own little pet projects like this, this uh, drying rack thing and uh, designing that just because if I just went out in the shop, I would never have any time for myself because I'm some crazy workaholic. Like I'll, I'll work, I get up uh, 630 in the morning and take my kid to school. And then I just go to work and I work until 10, 1030 at night. And then I'll watch uh, the Mandalorian or uh, what's going on the Boba Fett right now. So I'll, there's one more episode, the last episode waiting for me tonight to watch Boba Fett. So 1030 tonight after I'm done working, then I'll watch Boba Fett for an hour. And then I go to bed and I 630 next morning, I started all over again. And then on the weekends, I still work on the weekends, uh, editing my YouTube videos and posting that stuff uh, just because I really enjoy what I do. And it's just because I've set up my own, maybe not necessarily power hour, but just I'm cognizant of making sure that I make time for my pet projects that still forward the business. Yeah. I mean, same, same exact concept. It's, it's, you know, if it's an hour, if it's half hour, if it's 15 minutes, I mean, you, you look at, you know, um, 52 weeks a year and uh, five times 50 is 200 and 250, right? Uh, 250 hours if you do one a day, just five days a week. And, you know, that's, that's what, uh, six weeks worth yeah. of time, six yeah, weeks full time. That's a month and a half 
working full time if you just pick off an hour a day. And it's amazing, absolutely astounding what you can do in an hour a day. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of time, we've been talking for probably a close to an hour now. Uh, do you want to wrap this up? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of wrap up here, Brian, um, with what's going on in, in my shop. And interestingly enough, I did a little screen printing here over the last couple of weeks. We've been developing a fretboard radius sanding beam for the last year. It was a custom extrusion that I've been working on. Then it wound up having to go to the machine shop and get machined to the anodizer to get anodized. And now it's back in my hands. Uh, and we're doing all of our logos screen printed on top of that part. Um, and so I've done a little bit of screen printing in, in my past, but not at this level. So I, I learned how to screen print on anodized aluminum. It's been really kind of a fun little wow. project to wrap up. I didn't even know you could screen print on aluminum. I thought that was just like a t-shirt. Uh, yeah. Technology. You, thing. you can screen print on anything. And uh, there's all kinds, of, just like you would expect, there's all kinds of different types of inks and solvents and ways to make that happen, depending on what you're printing on top of. Cool. Very cool. What yeah. are you working on, Brian? Well, I'm just finishing up a uh, mid-century modern nightstand for some clients and uh, hopefully to have that video edited um, this Saturday and uh, get that guy published. So by the time this podcast comes out, it'll already be out. Um, but yeah, it's turning out really nice. Uh, Two-tone stain. White uh, white oak with a black, dark brownish black stained top. So yeah, pretty. Uh, I can't wait to that see day. it. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, thank you. We should probably wrap up then. So I'm Greg Porter. I'm Brian Benham, and thanks for listening to the Maker's Quest podcast.